Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here, uh, especially those of you online. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my name is Joel Florenda. I'm an elder here at Real Life, and I'm just uh, filling in for Justin this week. And uh, super excited about uh, finishing off this series of Wired for Worship we've been going through the last few weeks. Um, I know for me, I've been challenged in this series in my, just in my thought process, my attitude, and how I come here on Sundays to worship. And, um, you know, it's challenging to think through, um, do I come with an attitude of reverence and awe to a God that actually deserves that reverence and awe? And especially when I think about the times when I come and uh, how do I do that authentically, even if I don't actually feel like it? And how do I come and... Uh, I, we talked about through the, the, the last couple of weeks of how our worship actually impacts uh, the people around us. And how do I, how do I engage in worship uh, so that I can be a part of this community and, and uh, not be a distraction from worshiping God, but actually like engage in, and that we can do that together. And I have to do my part in that. It's challenging to think through uh, do I do that? Do I come here on Sundays ready to worship? Um, the thing is that worship is powerful. And actually the act of singing itself is powerful. There's a story that, uh, that comes from World War I, uh, from soldiers on the Western Front. Uh, you had the Germans on one side in the trenches and the French, the Belgians, and the British on the other. And some parts of this Western Front, the, the space between these two trenches was uh, just about 100 feet at some points. Um, so Christmas Eve, 1914, uh, there's some soldiers, they decide that they want to start singing some Christmas carols. And they're in the trench singing. And the story goes that when they got done with that song, uh, the other side started singing. They broke into their own Christmas carol in their own language. And then they went back and forth a few times, and then the, the French, the, the British, and the, the Belgians, they, they actually start into a familiar Christmas carol, O Come All You Faithful. And the Germans, they, they recognize it. So they join in in their own language. So you got these guys in the middle of this war, they were previously trying to kill each other. And all of a sudden, they're singing together. Well, the next day, Christmas morning, uh, these soldiers, they decide to get out of their trench. They, they call it a temporary truce. And uh, they spend the day actually exchanging gifts of what they had on hand. You know, they, they had cigarettes and buttons and pins and hats. So they, they give them as gifts to each other. There's rumors of uh, an impromptu soccer game kind of firing up, and they had a makeshift soccer ball that they played on the battlefield. And uh, some of the guys actually were able to gather the bodies of their, their friends that had died in the middle of this, this no-man's land in between the trenches. They were able to give them an actual burial. How does this happen? In the middle of the, one of the bloodiest wars in world history, you've got guys that uh, put down their rifles 
And for a day, they're, they're together uh, because of a, a Christmas carol, a worship song, no less. But our, our worship together is powerful. And I would say that if, uh, if creation is, if the entire creation is designed to glorify God, then all of creation is actually designed for worship. And to illustrate this, I, I wanted to play a video for you guys. It's, um, th- there's this subject of study in, in, in sound that's called cymatics. And essentially, cymatics is the, uh, the, the, the process of visualizing sound. And so they do this experiment in cymatics called uh, the Cladney experiment. And so what it is is they take a, a metal plate and they attach a sound driver to it. And what happens is when they place sound through this speaker, it, it vibrates the plate. And so when they take a, a granular medium like salt or sand and they throw it across the top of that and this plate is vibrating based on whatever sounds are playing through the speaker, uh, it, it's actually, the results are fascinating. So let's take a look at this video. The Cladney experiment. What we can see here is um, a metal sheet, this time connected to a sound driver and being fed by a frequency generator. And as the frequencies increase, so do the complexities of the patterns that appear on the plate, as you can see for your own eyes. It's amazing, right? Evan Grant, he's the guy that's talking in that video. He's a creative technologist. He says this about cymatics. He said, consider for a moment that sound does have form. We've seen that it can take, uh, that it can affect matter and form uh, within matter. Then take a leap and, and think about the immense sound of the universe forming. And if we ponder on that, then perhaps cymatics had an influence on the formation of the universe itself. I, mean, I don't know where Evan Grant stands with God. I don't know if he believes in him or, or if, if he's a Christian. Uh, but he's talking about the creation of the universe. And, and if, I, if I think about this, I have to wonder, what if God actually sang our universe into existence? That if when we, when we sing together, we actually are, are resonating with creation and how God designed it. We're speaking in this sort of native tongue of creation. This also makes me think about the story of Jesus as he's walking on the road to Jerusalem, and people are singing his praises and laying palms down, and, and then the Pharisees, they, they actually rebuke him, and they say, like, tell, tell these people to stop singing your praises. And Jesus says, if I tell them to stop, these rocks are going to start crying out. And, you know, I, I look at that video, and I think, you know, maybe Jesus was saying, literally, these rocks are going to cry out. It, it, it amazes me. Uh, Louis Giglio has this to say about our worship. He says, it's not that he needs any more worship to be worthy. No, God can be more, can't be more worthy than he already is and always has been. It's not that God needs our worship, but that he wants it. He wants it because he deserves it, and he commands it because to do so is the most loving thing he can possibly do. Well, you might be wondering, you know, how is God commanding our worship the most loving thing he could possibly do? 
was uh, here a couple weeks ago at service, and um, as service finished, I'm walking out, and I, I walk past this person that I didn't recognize, and so um, I stop, and I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll be friendly, and I turn, and I extend my hand, and say, hey, uh, I'm not sure if I've met you. Uh, my name is Joel, and you know, as soon as he says his name, I, I realize, like, oh, I know this guy. And not in the sense of, like, oh, we've been, we're long-lost friends or whatever. Like, it was in the sense of, like, he actually comes to this church, and he's been here for a couple years, and he's been to my house. He actually uh, has a tree trimming busy, trimmed my trees. So, obviously, super embarrassing. Like, um... I didn't even want to tell you this story, actually. Uh, so I'm embarrassed. But the thing is, like, to my credit, he, he actually had shaved his beard. He, he usually wears a hat. He wasn't wearing a hat. He combed his hair. He looked completely different. I wasn't the only one who didn't recognize him. So, like, I feel a little better, but still it was embarrassing. And, um, uh, you know, I, I have to think, though, for us, you know, how embarrassing would it be if God, the creator of the universe, walks in the room and we don't recognize it? If he's walking down the road and we don't recognize him? How embarrassing is it if the rocks realize it? They recognize God, the creator of the universe, before we do. But commanding our worship is the most loving thing he can do because he's sparing us that, that embarrassment, that that misrecognition of, of an almighty God. Well, all of our life is designed for worship. We think about what Paul has to say about this in Romans 12, he says this, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve of what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Well, who is Paul writing this to? We've been writing to, he would have been writing to first century uh, Jewish and Gentile residents of Rome. Uh, These guys probably were fairly new to this uh, idea of following Jesus, of being disciples of Jesus. We think about when this letter was written is about 20 years after the Pentecost. And so the gospel is moving out from Jerusalem. And it's, in 20 years, it's reached Rome. And it's interesting to think, uh, Paul actually, that we know of, never went to Rome. And we think that he actually didn't even know the people he was writing to in this letter. And so we think about how did the gospel even get there? Well, um, it was... The apostles telling people about Jesus, who then told people about Jesus. Well, disciples making disciples, right? People that were committed to the mission of reaching the world for Jesus. And even though these people in in Rome, they were new to this idea of following Jesus, uh, they wouldn't have necessarily been new to the idea of religion. Uh, so, you know, Jews coming from Judaism, pa- uh, Gentiles coming from a pagan background, they would have had a, a pretty integrated life with religion. 
they didn't have the same distinctions between the sacred and the secular that the, like, like we do. They would have been integrated into their, their work life, their home life, everything. Uh, it's not uncommon for us, you know, like we come here on a Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, maybe this place doesn't even cross our minds. That's normal, right? The problem really comes when we fail to realize we are actually still worshiping through the week. Uh, you might be wondering, well, how, how so? How am I worshiping through the week? Uh, so let me help me out here. Some... Some of the stuff you guys do through the week, go ahead and shout it out. What, what, do you guys, what kinds of things do you do throughout the week? It doesn't have to be about church or have to be about this community. Uh, what do you guys do? What's some normal stuff you guys do? Work, right? Take care of the house. Take care of the house. Yeah. What other things? What's that? Yeah. Go to the gym, right? So these are all good things, right? God created us to work. God created us to keep the house clean. God created us to keep our bodies healthy, right? It's in our design. The problem is that, would you agree that some people actually worship these things, right? Some people worship the gym, right? The normal things that we think of in worship for here, they actually happen for those other things. you know, you dedicate time to it. You study it, right? You tithe to it, right? You pay your gym fees, right? You sacrifice for it. You sacrifice your body. You sacrifice pain, right? You sacrifice maybe even your friends, your family, your spouse, because you spend time doing this other thing. We're still worshiping through the week. And these are all good things. I'm not saying don't go do these things. But uh, Mark Driscoll puts it this way, that good things make terrible gods. Do we know where our worship is going through the week? So one of the interesting questions I think we uh, need to answer through this passage is even why is Paul writing this letter? Um, he didn't know these people. So why is he writing this letter? And I think it, it can help inform how we interpret what he's saying, and it can inform uh, how we actually apply what he's saying. And uh, what's interesting is that we can find the answer uh, in the historical context of this, uh, of this letter. Uh, if you turn in uh, Acts chapter 18, it says this, that Paul, he left Athens... He went to Corinth, and there he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy with when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. So what does this have to do with this letter to Rome? So remember what I said, that the, the gospel is moving out from Jerusalem into the, the, the rest of the world, and it gets to Rome. And what happens is you've got Jews that, uh, formerly following Judaism, become Christians. You've got Gentiles, formerly following paganism, they become Christians. And what they think happened is that they're starting to gather together, and they're actually meeting in the synagogues. And so what, what they realize when they get together is that, hey, this new life with Christ... We, we've got some very different ideas about what that looks like. And 
the, the dispute and the debate becomes so heated that it actually gains the attention of Claudius Caesar, who was the ruler of Rome at this time. And uh, if, you, if you aren't familiar, Rome and Israel, they don't have the best relationship, right? They, so Rome goes in and they conquers Israel. They're the ruling power. But ever since that point, Israel is trying to get out from the rule of Rome. They've, they were known for their rebellions and their riots. And they gained a reputation of being a contentious people. And so Claudius, he, he knows this. He remembers their history. And he, he knows their reputation. So he actually says, instead of letting this, uh, these debates in, between these Gentile Christians, these Jew, Jewish Christians, instead of letting them spiral out of control, uh, I'm going to actually cut that off at the past. And you know, this is what we were actually reading here. There's other historians who corroborate this as well, that Claudius uh, decreed that all the Jews need to be expelled from Rome. Just kick them out. I'm not going to deal with any, any, any more problems from them. So we see there that Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth because they were kicked out of Rome. But five years later, Claudius actually dies, and then Nero takes over. And this decree, this edict that, that Claudius gives to kick all the Jews out of Rome, it actually expires. And so all the Jews are, are welcome to come back. Well, everyone's wondering what's going to happen. You, have, you still have Gentiles that were Christians that have been living in Rome this whole time, Probably the whole landscape of the church has changed. You've got Gentiles that probably no longer go to the synagogue, but they've, they've made house churches, right? The whole leadership structure of, of the church there is completely different. The Jews are going to come in. What's going to happen? So Paul's writing against this landscape or this, this backdrop of, of two cultures clashing, right? They're at odds with one another. Does it sound familiar to you guys? Show of hands, how many people here recently have moved from California? Only two people were willing to admit it. <laughs> this, is, this letter could be written to us. We should be paying attention to what Paul has to say here. Because this, our cultural divide right now, this is what Paul is writing about. So if we continue reading the rest of this letter, we can actually see that Paul urges these two different cultures to figure out how to live together despite their differences, figure out how to be unified despite their differences. If you look and you keep reading through this chapter, he says in verse 4, we are many parts of one body and we belong to one another. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Live in harmony with each other. Owe nothing to anybody except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. And this, accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. 
Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't, and those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall, and with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. I think about this, and uh, maybe if Paul were writing to us, Maybe it would go something like this. Accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them on what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to get vaccinated, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will never get vaccinated. Those who feel free to get vaccinated must not look down on those who don't, and those who don't get vaccinated must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn somebody else's servant? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall, and with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. Well, these Roman Christians, they would have come to this life with Christ, this new life with Christ, with their preconceived ideas about what that looks like. They would have drug along this baggage from their religions. The Jews, in their Judaism, and uh, they would have had these ideas about the Sabbath and the dietary laws and circumcision. And the Gentiles, they would have brought along with them their pagan ideas about the rituals and the festivals and animal sacrifice, and some of them even human sacrifice. But this is no different than us, right? I mean, hopefully not the human sacrifice part, (laughs) but uh, we have our own things, right? We have our stuff that we bring to the table. How many of us grew up in a, a time of church when uh, playing with, with cards, playing cards was looked down upon, was unacceptable? How many of us never got to read the Harry Potter? <laughs> we have our own stuff. Uh, you know, one time I actually was at, a, at a, a Christian gathering, and this guy gave me the evil eye for playing an electric guitar. He he actually sent somebody to tell me to stop playing. It was it's crazy, right? I mean, the thing is, like, if I'm honest, I have my stuff too that I bring to the table. And what this says to the message that it says is that any deviation from what I think is what the life of Christ, life with Christ should look like, that's blasphemy. And the real message at the root of that is that you must behave if you want to belong. But if we read through this letter, Paul is actually fighting for the Roman church to each belong to each other in an act of worship to God. Well, life in community, that is our spiritual act of worship. And some of you here, you might be thinking like, man, this is what... I've been longing for and looking for my entire life. We're glad you're here. Some of you are thinking, man, this is going to be messy. (laughs) I know you're out there because I am one of you. (laughs) You know, oftentimes I, I meet new people here and, you know, I get to talk with them and spend time with them and um, I, 
you know, a lot of times they're excited and, and I think it's, oh, this is great. Like, uh, um, it's fun to hang out with them. And they're interesting people. Oftentimes the next thought in my mind is, I wonder what's wrong with them. It's a cynical side in me that doesn't want to get involved in the messiness, right? I don't want to engage because other people's stuff, it's too much work. But the reality of that, of that statement, of that, that sentiment, what that actually says is that I would, I would rather worship, rather than the God of the universe, I'd rather worship my comfort. But I'd rather worship my control. We often say that uh, we've given our hearts to Jesus, but Paul, in this passage, is actually asking us, urging us to give our bodies to Jesus. Will you show me uh, where your body goes? I'll show you where your heart actually belongs. You know, growing up in the church, uh, the, as, as Paul moves on to verse 2 about uh, no longer being conformed to the pattern of this world, growing up in church, I, I've often uh, heard people talk about this, um, and, and a lot of times it comes out as a, as a list of things not to do, a don't, right? You know, like, don't do drugs, don't get drunk, uh, don't hang out with the wrong people, don't be a crazy psycho murderer. <laughs> I mean, these things seem obvious, right? You know, and, and if that's what Paul is actually talking about, then well, check. I got that. I got a good three out of four, at least, you know, like, I got to figure it out. But the reality, like, I, that I, I want that list because it's clean, it's neat, it's easy. But sacrifice by nature is messy. When you think about sacrificing an animal, it's messy. Uh, let me, uh, by the way, the, that list of don'ts, uh, if, you, if it's stuff that you struggle with, like, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not meaning to give any judgment to those. And I don't mean to uh, trivialize whatever struggle that you might be facing through those things. Um, if you're here this morning, you're in the right place. I mean, even if you are a crazy psycho murderer, this is, this is the right place. Please don't murder anybody. <laughs> oh, uh, we're not a very big church, and somebody goes missing, we're going to recognize it. Uh, you can try, like, Rock Harbor or Eagle Christian. But it says, if we renew our minds, we'll be able to recognize God's will when we see it. This process of renewing our minds, it's, it's tough. It's, it's hard work. It takes time. It takes time in God's word. It takes time in prayer. Spending time with God. It takes time spending time with other believers. But I think as Christians, we often wrestle with this question of what is God's will for my life? What does God want from me? And I think we oftentimes make it more complicated than it really is. Uh, if we look at what Jesus says in John 15, he says this, this is my commandment. Love each other the same way I've loved you. 
There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Well, how did Jesus love his disciples? Well, he lays his life down. He lays his life down for them for the sake of redeeming and restoring relationship with them. Can we emulate that? Because I think that's what Paul is reflecting through this entire letter. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, do our lives reflect this? My wife, she likes to say it this way, uh, laying your life down is, uh, for us, it's really about being willing to be being highly inconvenienced for the sake of another. Do we do that? Do we see that in our, in our home life? Are we willing to do that for our spouses, for our kids, for our brothers and sisters? Do we do that at work with our coworkers, with our bosses, our managers, and subordinates? Do we do that in our social media life? That people actually see, this person is a follower of Jesus, I can tell, because of the way they love you, they love others. A renewed and transformed mind is one that is willing to get messy because that is where the mission is fought and won. This is spiritual maturity. And the spiritually mature understand that worship requires the death of something that competes with uh, God for the throne of your heart. And Paul is, throughout this letter, he's urging these guys to fight the right fight, not about the baggage that they're dragging along from their religions, but actually be a people that would sacrifice their bodies for the sake of one another, for the sake of the mission. And maybe for us, that, that list of things that we should do to reflect that, maybe it's something like this. Maybe you need to go to somebody, uh, somebody with whom you've broken relationship with because they hurt you. And you need to sit down with them and work through it until a relationship is restored. Maybe some of you need to forgive somebody that you've been hanging on to something for years and it's time to just forgive them. Maybe it's the time that you need to create safe spaces for people to process through their grief, through their challenges, so that they can take a next step. Parents, are you willing to get down on the floor to play with your kids? Husbands, are you willing to date your wives the way that you did before you were married? To bring a meal to somebody, serve on a ministry team here, join a home group, and actually go every week? To sing out loud, even if it maybe sounds awful. To raise your hands in worship, even if you feel self-conscious. Maybe somebody needs to see you guys doing these things in order for them to have the courage to step out and, and follow your example. So they, they also can act in worship by being a living sacrifice. This life with Christ being a disciple of Jesus, it's, it's hard. 
It's messy. It's time-consuming. It's expensive. But this, our take-home today, worship requires the death of the thing that competes with God for the throne in your heart. And I think as we process through this, uh, uh, hang on to uh, this, the statement that the reality is that uh, this is the most loving thing that God can command of us. So as we move into our time of communion, uh, we do this every week, and we want to remind ourselves uh, of, of why we come here. We want to remind ourselves that Jesus actually carried out the greatest act of worship, that he was obedient to the Father and went to die on the cross for our sake so that we could uh, follow his example into that same death to be living sacrifices. And so as we move into communion, I just want us to consider uh, a couple of questions here. So what competes against God for your heart? What do you need to sacrifice today in order to worship God? So let's go ahead and pray about those.